Papachango. first thing I want to get off my chest is that monkeys and apes are not the same fucking thing. All right. I did play those snippets of monkey songs because I couldn't find any songs in my extensive music library that talked about apes. But for those of you who are interested, apes are primates that do not have tails. That's the main difference the distinguishing difference between monkeys and apes. We are apes. We are one of the great apes, along with chimps, bonobos, orangutans, and gorillas. And then there is the lesser ape, the gibbon, uh, which is in uh, Asia. The others are all in Africa. Oh, no, that's not true. The orangutans are also in Asia. Yeah. I've seen orangutans in the wild on the island of Sumatra. That sounds like one of those things you say when you want to sound really pretentious. When I was in Sumatra, living with the wild orangutan. Yeah. Anyway, this is no time for me to be pretentious because the guest today is Franz Duvall, who is one of the world's, if not the world's, most well-known expert on bonobos, and uh, he's right up there with Jane Goodall in terms of his expertise around chimpanzees. He's written, God, I don't even know how many books he's written, but I've probably read half a dozen of them, and I'm sure there are at least another half a dozen I haven't read. Uh, we talk about his latest book, which is called Different, Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. Uh, interesting. Franz is uh, obviously a very, very smart guy, very well-informed. He was the director of the Yerkes Primate Center, which is the premier um, research institute uh, of primates in the United States, certainly, and probably in the world. Um, he directed that for years. He's retired now. He taught at Emory University in Atlanta, where he lives still. Um and Franz, you know, a book about gender in 2022? Are you kidding me, man? But Franz is also an extremely cautious, um, careful thinker, very clear thinker. And um, he manages to wade through, now wade is the wrong word, to pick his way through the minefield that is any conversation about gender and sex and uh, these issues in 2022. He manages to do it quite well. Now, I have to say, this conversation that you're about to listen to was one of these things that we recorded on Zoom or, or whatever platform I was using, uh, and it kept 
cutting out. So I think in the course of a 45 minute to an hour conversation, we had to reboot our computers and restart our browsers and disconnect and reconnect. And so from my perspective, it never quite got off the ground. There wasn't the sort of fluidity that one has in um, a conversation in person. And uh, I just listened to it again while I was editing it and, you know, trying to clear out all the awkwardness and like, can you hear me? Oh, your image froze up. And it's a good conversation, uh, but it's more like a conversation, honestly, um, about our about his life and, and his perspectives on on some issues than it is me really drilling down on some of the areas um, that could be more contentious or controversial. And part of that is the technological things I'm talking about that I, it was just hard to sort of get into a rhythm. Uh, and part of it also is that I like friends very much. Uh, you may have heard that he was very instrumental in, well, I don't know if instrumental is the word, but he was supportive uh, when I was publishing Sex at Dawn, despite the fact that there's plenty of material in Sex at Dawn that um, disputes some of his findings or conclusions, uh, and he could have been uh, pissed off or sensitive or whatever, and he wasn't at all. He was just a, a true mensch. And um, and he still is. And so I have no real interest in disagreeing or, or being disagreeable. But if we were in person, I think um, I would have pushed a little harder in some areas um, than I did in this conversation. So I won't say that this is, you know, really drilling down deep into these issues. Um, but it's very interesting to talk to a guy like Franz who has spent his life with non-human primates who sort of, um, you know, are expressing gender or expressing their identities in ways that are certainly much less mitigated by culture than how you and I express these things. Um, apes do have culture, and that's one of the contributions to the field that Franz has been central in, um, in demonstrating that uh, he's written about chimpanzee politics and how different groups of primates certainly do have culture that they transmit across generations. Um, really interesting material. So I encourage you to read everything Franz has written. Uh, I've read Chimpanzee Politics, uh, the book we talk about um, secondarily to, to um, different. We also talk about a book that he published with Franz Lanting called Bonobo, The Forgotten Ape, which is a large format book of photographs by Franz Lanting and essays by Franz Duvall. And it's one of the first books that really introduced bonobos to a, a wide, non-specialist audience. And, of course, bonobos are extremely important in understanding human origins because 
bonobos and chimpanzees are equidistant from us. So anytime you read somebody saying, oh, you know, chimpanzees demonstrate that, you know, the origins of murder and rape and warfare go very deep into the human DNA because we share, you know, common ancestors with chimpanzees. If they don't mention bonobos, fuck them because that's bullshit. It's unbalanced. Bonobos who have no war, no murder, no infanticide and no rape are equally distant to human or equally related to human beings. Um, the way I describe it in public talks sometimes is like, you know, I've got two twin cousins and they're very obviously similar to each other. They're very closely related to each other, but they are both equally related to me. And that's one cousin maybe is a bit of an asshole. That's the chimp. And the other cousin is a real sweetheart. That's the bonobo. You can't just point at my asshole cousin and say, Chris comes from that family with that asshole and not mention like, well, but I also have this real sweetheart in my family. So it's a bugaboo. It's a, it's a, one of those, what, what do you say? What's the expression? It's something that bothers me when I read this stuff because it's so transparently biased pretending to be scientifically balanced and it just isn't so always any discussion of the primate origins of anything in humans needs to cite both bonobos and chimpanzees because both are equally relevant to the human condition all right without further ado i will uh play a song by one of my favorite artists joe henry joe henry's the guy that every singer-songwriter knows, but the general public doesn't know so well. He's just incredibly talented and smart and has a distinctive style, um, but he just never really played that commercial game in a way that, uh, that one needs to in order to take off. Um, yeah, anyway, Joe Henry. The song's called Monkey. I don't want to uh, get, you know, really nasty to begin with. I'll keep you monkey. I'll treat him. Like he talks to you I'll cut your corn And I'll keep it dry And maybe someday, someday, someday My lip to keep it so 
Franz Duvall, one of the world's leading experts in non-human primates. Uh, thank you for making the time to, to chat with us. I'm glad to be here. So my first question I, I wanted to ask you, and, and it's probably a question that we should ask anyone who ever writes a book, but per, seems particularly relevant uh, for your latest book, Different. Why did you write this book? Where, what was the origin story of this? Well, that's because I give many lectures for many people. And um, each time I mention sex differences in the primates, I say, for example, females are more like that or males are more like that. People have follow-up questions. People want to know more about it. There's clearly a curiosity about the biology of gender, and they think that the, the primatologist is going to give them that, <laughs> which is which is maybe naive, but uh, they, they ask questions about it, and I think it's because in the media, if you read about gender, uh, the blogs and everything, it's mostly about uh, socialization and culture, and uh, we talk our girls into doing this, and we talk our boys into doing that, and I think People are skeptical about that. Uh, I think many people, deep down, they know that that's not the whole story. That cannot be the whole story. So, so they want to hear from me what I think about it. 
Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, uh, the reason I say it's a particularly pertinent question in this case is obviously the question of gender and uh, sex and, and the extent to which it's inborn or cultural. These are all very uh, immediate questions at the moment. Um, but I wouldn't say I know you very well, but what little I do know about you, I think you're a very cautious person. Uh-huh. Um, and you're wading into this very contentious issue. It seems sort of out of character for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And, and, and the unfortunate thing of the book is, of course, that the answer is not simple because people... They think if you look at the primates, you see the biology. And if you look at humans, you see the culture. And, and, and I, I'm actually saying in the book, if you look at the primates, you see also culture mm-hmm. because they learn a lot in their lifetime. And if you look at humans, you also see biology. And so the picture is not simple. And in addition, we have two close relatives who are quite different in behavior, which makes it even more complex. So I have no simple message. But but clearly, my message is you, we need to bring in more biology into the gender discussion. We cannot just leave that out. Yeah. So maybe we should start by uh, defining our terms, um, because I don't know if you're using them different. For example, gender, uh, mm-hmm. the sort of conventional understanding of gender, as you mentioned earlier, was that it's uh, culturally conditioned. Um, and it varies across culture, but you're using the term uh, in a more biological sense, and you're applying it to non-human primates. So, how how do you define gender versus sex when you're talking about chimps or bonobos? So, sex relates to the body and the biology and the genitals and the hormones and the chromosomes. Sex is mostly binary, not entirely. There's a one or two percent of, of people, and in other species it may be even a bigger number, uh, that is not exactly male or female. So that's the sex part. And uh, gender relates to the cultural expression and, and how you identify. Uh, and, and so gender is a term that was introduced by John Money, a sexologist, who was fed up by the negative labels that we had for people who, who didn't fit the mold, you know. So he had noticed, for example, that some people are born one sex, but they identify with the other. And uh, we only had negative labels for them, like weird or abnormal or weird, I don't know what. And, and uh, John Money said we, we need more neutral labels, and that's how he come, came up with the gender label. And he was also the first one to, to establish a gender clinic. So gender is different, but since gender relates to culture and how we expect men and women to behave and so on, uh, it's also applicable, I think, to the other primates because they have a long, like a chip is adult when he's 16, so he has a long time of developing. And I think they also learn how to behave as a male or as a female in their society. And so the gender concept is also applicable to them. I think, it's, I think the gender concept is actually very useful to show that there's both environment and biology involved in what we do as male or female, you know? Yeah, and in the book you, you actually uh, profile some bonobos and chimps, I believe, that you've known over the years who seem to have gender identification that didn't necessarily align with their biological mm-hmm. sex. Yeah, I, 
I cannot know about the identification, but I describe a female chimpanzee, Donna, who uh, from very young, I, I've known her since she was three, so a li little female. She already wanted to wrestle with, with males, like myself, but also with adult male chimpanzees. And um, this wrestling tendency is very strong in the boys, in the, in the males, but not in the females. And so she was already at an early age, she was different. And then later she developed in puberty, she, she, she had all the hair, males have a lot more hair, and the big shoulders and the big head. Mm. She, she started to look like a male, and she acted like a male. She, she associated a lot with the adult males. And from a distance, she, you would swear she was a male. Mm. So um, she was completely accepted in the group, very well integrated female. She also associated with females and groomed with them and all of that. But she never had children. Yeah, I don't know what to make of her. Uh, but, but in humans, she might be a trans woman. Yeah, mm. uh, a trans man, a trans man. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, yeah and you say she, she never had young. Did, do you know, was she sexually active? No, she was not sexually active. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, you said like she never got the full sexual swelling of a female yeah. who's yeah. in estrus as well. So yeah, yeah. So so it's likely that hormonally she was a bit different. Right. Yeah. Well, and you do say uh, at one point in the book, you say gender identities are probably shaped in the womb through hormonal exposure. Um, yeah. Experience after birth seems to have little impact. Now, I yeah, found that to a, be. An interesting line there. Go <laughs> that, ahead. That's that's actually a theory of Dick Swap, the neuroscientist, who, who found some brain differences between uh, trans men and, and trans women and and, uh, and and others. So, so for example, uh, a certain part of the brain that is larger or smaller in men and women. So he he developed this idea that um, during pregnancy, uh, the, the development of the fetus, the human fetus. The, the genitals differentiate earlier in male and female than the brain. The brain comes right. later. And uh, they go in, in the direction of male or female. And he felt that the, what happens with trans people is that probably these two processes get disconnected. Like the genitals develop in this direction, the brain develops in that direction, and so there's a mismatch between the two. And uh, the, the people who are trans, they feel that, because that's their brain, they feel they are this, but their genitals say they are that. And so um, since, since this happens during fetal development, probably, he thinks it's a biological process driven by hormones, but we don't know how and why. We don't know if this is a genetic thing, or we, we don't know how this happens. But it is true that trans people are they identify differently from their biological sex very early in life. This starts at three or four years of age, very early. Uh, and, it's, and it doesn't change. There was a recent study in the US that showed that if you ask children who are trans children, and you ask them six years later, they are still, there's only two and a half percent who changes their mind on this. So, so it's very persistent. They, they, they are trans, they feel they identify like, let's say, uh, a male, and they don't change their mind on that. So, so that's, that yeah. indicates biology, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't know the numbers, but I'm under the impression that there's a fairly significant number of people who identify as trans who then later 
change their mind. Um, and that's part of the controversy over giving puberty blockers and, um, you know, doing surgery with people who are under 18. Because if they detransition, then they have a serious problem. Um, and I, I think. I, I, I've seen statistics on that one time. And it said that only 1% changes their mind. Huh. And, they, and they compared it with other surgeries like plastic surgery, mm. you know, uh, uh, breast surgery. Uh, and, and the percentage is huge. For, and we, don't, we don't abolish plastic surgery because there are lots of people who regret what they did. So I think uh, if, it's, if it's 1% or 2% who changes their mind on that, that's a very small percentage, I would say. So I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't worry about that part. In the um, the research that you mentioned earlier, where there are brain differences detectable um, between trans and non-trans people, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I f feel like I read that those differences also existed between gay men and straight men, and yeah. straight women yeah. and lesbians. Is yeah. there? Is the brain difference, in other words, if you looked at a person's brain uh, based upon that physiological or anatomical change, could you tell if they were trans or simply gay? No, I don't think so. so you're, talking, you're talking to the wrong expert. I'm not an expert on brains, but yeah. uh, the, the, um, the, the part of the brain that is changed that Dick Swap in his studies found um, is so small. It's, it's, it's the size of a grain of uh, rice. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of doubt in the literature. So, so, so yes, this has been found. It's sort of interesting that probably in the brain, the brain reflects whether you're uh, a tr transsexual uh, or, or not. Um, but this, this is not worked out at all. Right. There's no firm conclusions, I would say. Yeah, and I remember, I think it was in your book, you also said it's not clear, it's a chicken-egg situation. It's not clear whether behavior yeah. uh, creates this change or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very difficult. Um, so you would say then, I'm, I'm guessing based upon what you just said about um, the very small number of people who detransition, that the recent increase in kids identifying as trans is a reflection of greater social acceptance, not um, a fad or kids yeah. who are confused channeling it in this direction because it's in the news. Yeah, I, I, I think these people have always existed and, and they have always been hidden. And mm. it's, a, it's a fairly small percentage. It's less than 1%. But still, we're talking about in the U.S. We're talking about millions of people. If it's less than one percent, it's still a lot of people. Yeah. So it's a, it's a substantial group, but they have been hidden until now. And you know, the same thing happened with homosexuality. That was hidden for a long time, and, yeah. and that's a much bigger percentage of people. So so that's maybe four or five percent. So um, uh, yeah. So so. In biology, of course, we are very used to individual variability. I'm looking at the forest here. I'm living in a forest. There's no two trees who are the same. In biology, we are very used to that. Uh, and in society, we have tried to suppress all that individual variability. And now that we pay more attention to trans people, 
people are sort of in a panic, like, oh, they're coming from everywhere. There's too many of them. Uh, but th I think there's all, they have always been here. And so uh, it's a matter of acceptance. That's the big issue. Um, acceptance is the issue, not uh, how it comes about, because uh, we don't know fully how that happens. And it's not going to change much, I think, in, in what we do. Yeah. Have you, how's the response been to the book and, and to your appearances? Have you sort of found yourself in the center of a storm of a lot of emotional no. stuff? No, you've avoided Str that? The strange thing is that uh, it's, it's quite well accepted. It has been reviewed uh, and I've had interviews with both men and women, both uh, feminists and non-feminists, let's say. And um, I've, I've not noticed a lot of resistance. I think the resistance that I could expect is more um, actually from a corner that I, I had not expect. I had expected the resistance would come from people who say that uh, gender is purely cultural and they don't want to hear from a biologist. But I think the resistance is more coming from people who don't want to hear that there's gender diversity outside of the human species. Because I basically try to explain that homosexual behavior can be found in other primates. Uh, individuals who are not completely typical in their development can be found in them. And I think that's not an entirely welcome message for certain people. Mm. Uh, and, they, and they sometimes complain and they send me messages. They don't complain in public, but they send me uh, email messages in which they explain that I'm completely wrong. Uh, so that's more where the resistance seems to come from, um, not from the people who I had expected. Now, are these people who are resistant, are, are they colleagues of yours? Are these biologists who, who differ no. with your findings? Or no? no, they're not colleagues. And, and I think uh, in primatology, there is increasing attention now to... Uh, there was recently an article on homosexual behavior by chimpanzees in the forest. Um, and, and, and I think we've always known that this behavior existed, but we've never documented it. And now we have finally some people who are documenting these things. So I think there is an increasing attention to these issues. In, in, in bonobos, of course, we have always documented it. In bonobos, it's such a common behavior that it would be silly not to document it. But yeah. in chimpanzees, it's a bit less common. And we have sort of ignored it, you know. And, and within, across species of primates, I, I'm guessing that there are a greater or lesser uh, frequency of this sort of same-sex behavior. Like with bonobos, there's a lot of it. Maybe with chimpanzees, it's more moderate. Maybe with baboons, there's very little. Is that true, or do you find same-sex behavior across all primate species? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it varies tremendously. In bonobos, it's common because female-female sex is politically very important for them. The females have a sisterhood, even though they're not sisters, they're not related, but the females band together and they collectively, collectively dominate the males. Uh, and this is so important to them that they need to maintain that sisterhood. Uh, and they do that with grooming and with sex. Uh, and so I think it depends on how important are male-male relations or female-female relations in a species. If they're very important, you're going to get more sex. So, for example, um, uh, dolphins, which are sort of the bonobos of the sea, they, they have a lot of sex also. Uh, dolphins have a big clitoris, and I'm sure female-female uh, sex and male-male sex is very important in their society. Mm. Yeah. They also have prehensile penises, if I'm not mistaken. 
I, I think the elephant has that. I don't know about the dolphin, but the elephant does, yeah. Really? That's interesting. <laughs> so uh, at one point you talk about um, instincts uh, and uh, Montague, I think, who said that humans have no instincts. Where, yeah. where is the literature on that now? I, I had a, a professor in graduate school who studied with Montague, and he told me humans have no instincts. And I thought, I don't know if that's true. I feel like there must be instincts among humans. Where, where do you stand on that? The funny thing is that in biology, we, we barely use the word instinct anymore for animals. So, mm. so it's because there's, there's nothing that animals do that is not influenced by the environment. And instinct gives this impression like they are born with a behavioral program that will come out, whatever the circumstances, they will come out. And uh, it doesn't really apply to most animals doesn't apply to most behavior. So now we use the term instinct sometimes for a preference. Let's, let's say, uh, and this relates to gender, young female primates, they have, they're very interested in infants. They want to hold infants, they want to touch infants, they want to hold dolls if you give them dolls. This is universal in the primates. All the females have this. Hmm. Which is logical because later in life they will be spending a lot of time with infants. So uh, it's logical that they have that interest and they're born with it. And so you could call that an instinct, like a maternal instinct. But it doesn't mean that they know what to do with infants. They, they need to learn all the skills. The maternal skills are really complex. So, so um, it's one of the most complex things that they do. So if you're, for example, a primate, if you're, let's say, a gorilla female and you have a baby in your lap, that baby doesn't automatically get to your nipples to drink. You need to bring it to the, you need to lift it up and bring it to the nipple, and you need to know what's going to happen there. Uh, and, and that all takes experience, and, and young females get that experience by handling the babies of other females. Mm. So playing with the babies or playing with dolls. And um, so all the, the young females have that interest. All the human girls have that interest. Well, all. More, more interest than boys, let's say it that way. Uh, so that, that seems to be an instinct in the sense that you're, you're driven to, to acquire skills that you need later in life. Yeah, yeah but what about... But, but instinct, instinct in the sense of a pre-programmed behavior, yeah, that's, we don't use it for animals anymore, no. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder about things like spiders building webs or termites building mounds, you know, where there does seem to be pre-programmed behavioral sequences, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. they're not learning for sure. that. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. Or yeah. salmon, you know, returning to where they were hatched, you know, like somehow they... Um, yeah. yeah, but among humans, I'd, I don't know. It would be very hard to think of examples. Um, you You mentioned... The, the sort of females learning from each other as they grow up. And uh, I enjoy the parts of your books where you allow yourself to be a little autobiographical. And uh, uh -huh. when you talked about your mother and having seven sons and, um, you know, how you were supposed to be, what was it, Francina or something? You <laughs> yeah, six. She had six sons and one husband. So oh, we had okay. seven, men, seven men. Okay. Seven yeah. men in the home. Yeah. So I'm from a very uh, sex biased uh, home. Yeah. In, in in the sex ratio, um, and and maybe that has driven my curiosity about gender, um, because I I also went to boys' school and all of that. So so I didn't see a lot of girls when I was young. That's for sure. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting that you then become an expert on this female dominant species. Um, you know, it, it made me, when I was reading that, it made me wonder, like, how would your life and your research be different if you had had a couple of sisters? Yeah, I don't it, know. It, it, maybe you wouldn't have been as fascinated by bonobos, you know, maybe. It's, <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the bonobo is interesting because the, the, the bonobo was discovered after the chimpanzee. And, and you wonder what would have happened if the bonobos were discovered first and we didn't know the chimpanzee for a long time. Uh, I, I'm not sure how anthropologists would have handled this because the anthropologists are so obsessed by human aggressiveness and violence and male dominance. Uh, I'm not sure what, how they would have handled the bonobo. Their reaction at the moment has, has been you know, disappointing in the, in the sense that many anthropologists don't want to hear much about the bonobo. They, they want to focus on the chimpanzee. So you were talking about how you were disappointed in some of the anthropological, uh, the way the anthropological community has responded to bonobos. Yeah, so they, uh, since they, their evolutionary scenario of the human uh, species is very dependent on violence and, and they emphasize warfare and how we have eliminated everybody, including the Neanderthals and how we have been victorious, and they describe very triumphalist books, you know, like the success of the human species, stuff like that. So they, they are very focused on uh, conquering the world. And the chimpanzee fit in that picture because the chimpanzees are very violent between groups. The males kill sometimes males from other groups. Um, so they were very happy with the chimpanzee, I think, in that scenario but not with the bonobo. In bonobos, killing between groups doesn't occur. The females are dominant. They're, they're actually quite peaceful, the bonobos, and, and very sexy. And, and the anthropologists don't really know what to do with it. And so in their books, they, they say such things as like, um, the bonobo is a very strange species of primate. And then they push them aside and then they continue with the chimpanzee, as if the bonobo is irrelevant. But the bonobos are genetically exactly equally close to us as chimpanzees. So they are exactly equally relevant. And I always feel we need to look at both. And, and I personally think, and I'm sure you think, that the human is a very sexy species. And so the eroticism of the bonobo is really interesting in that regard. All right. So you were talking about um, how bonobos are ignored as um, irrelevant by some anthropologists and, and uh, other writers who are wedded to the violent, dominant, male, conquering kind of paradigm. And I agree with that. I, I've, I've criticized, we have a sort of common target in Steven Pinker and uh, Richard Dawkins. I've, I've disputed that neo-Hobbesian vision of human history and prehistory. Um, but what about with sexuality? Because I feel like, you know, my book, Sex at Dawn, which you were very kind in uh, in writing sort of a blurb for in a way. Um, you know, the argument that we make there is that bonobos are very relevant to human sexuality. But I feel like you sort of uh, skirted around that a little bit in your own writing where you say, well, yes, bonobos are like this and chimps are like that. And humans are not a promiscuous species and we're, you know, pair bonding. 
But what do you do with the fact that, you know, humans have sex when we're not ovulating, when pregnancy is impossible? And, you know, we're you've mentioned dolphins earlier, clearly not a pair bonding uh, species. Um, how do you frame that in your own mind? Where where do you think that science is? Well, I think um, bonobos also have sex when they're not ovulating. So, so bonobos, they have these genital swellings, the females, but they don't correspond exactly with ovulation. And, and so uh, they have a lot of sex going on when they're not uh, able to get pregnant. So, so I think, um, yeah, humans... I, I would never call humans monogamous necessarily. Humans have nuclear families in the sense that man got involved in the caring for offspring. And, and it's a very flexible system clearly because in many societies it's one male, one female and their children, but in many other societies that's not the arrangement and, and there may be many men involved in a family or many women involved in a family. So, so it's a very flexible arrangement, but men are involved in offspring care one way or another um, and that's not the case in bonobos and chimps the, the males do very little so so, so that's um, a substantial difference we have evolved nuclear families uh, whether we are monogamous or not people always ask that um, uh, I don't think we can answer that question we cannot even answer that question for, for birds you know there, there are certain birds who lifelong stay together the male and the female so you, you could call them monogamous but we know now from all sorts of research that um, uh, even in these birds, we can only speak of social monogamy. They don't have, it's not, it's not always the male who is the father of the, of the offspring of the birds. Yeah. Has, has there ever been research where chimps or bonobos were shown uh, pornography? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, you know, you mean human pornography? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah prob probably, probably. Uh, but um, I do remember uh, at some zoos they had trouble getting uh, certain males to copulate with females. I think it was a gorillas actually, uh, and then they showed them pornography in the hope that they they would learn something from it. Human pornography, or did they film? I think I think I think that was human pornography. Ah, okay. It was, it was pretty radical, I think, to do that. Right, yeah. right. I remember, and I, and I I don't remember if it worked. You know, <laughs> uh, so so the same thing is done, uh, and this is this is not pornography. The same thing is done with females who cannot raise their offspring. Mm -hmm. So females who, who don't know how to nurse their babies, uh, for example, gorillas or, or chimps, they show them human, human women who, who then nurse their baby in front of them, and that seems to help. Mm. That's, that seems to help them. So, so, uh, so, so giving them an example of behavior that they need to show. Yeah. Well, I wonder, among bonobos uh, and or chimps, when they witness... Uh, a couple copulating does that then spread among the group in other words do, are they excited by the sight of other animals having sex yeah no I, I think the reaction of males usually you're seeing that is trying to interfere you know if you're the high-ranking males they try to interfere with uh. it 
uh, I, I've never seen that it, uh, it uh, facilitates their behavior, so to speak. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. So it's not like sneezing where you see someone sneeze and then you want to sneeze or yawning or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I, re- I asked about that because I remember reading some research. I, I forget the researcher's name. I think she was in, in Montreal, maybe at McGill or somewhere. And she showed women different images that could be considered erotic and one of the video clips was of bonobos having sex and she was measuring uh-huh. genital blood flow in the in her human subjects and oh, yeah. she found yeah. that um yeah she showed like women with women men with men men with women and then um just uh, like a attractive man and a woman walking down a beach you know, in bathing suits, uh-huh. and then also bonobos having sex, and she wanted to see how these different video clips stimulated uh-huh. genital blood uh-huh. flow. Um, but the eroticism of the bonobo is really interesting because uh, it it is suppressed in our media. You know, like mm. um, uh, in in the U.S. and 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 Great Britain, especially, people are very shy about sex. They're very puritan. And, and I noticed that if I, for example, if I show bonobo videos to American audiences or to my classes at, at Emory University, the people go silent. If I, do, if I do it in Holland or in France, people become happy. They become animated. They, they think it's wonderful what, what, is, what they're seeing. Mm. But uh, Americans, they become silent. So, so it's a very different reaction. And I think it explains why Sex in Bonobos wasn't mentioned for a long time until uh, Franz Lanting and I did our book on the Bonobos um, because um, uh, American scientists didn't know what to do with it. It was too explicit for them. And I've I've heard that the same thing is happening now in in Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood also always paid more attention to violence than to sex. But now I hear that sex has almost entirely disappeared from the movies. It's less than 2% of movie content is erotic. And, and it's mostly tongue-kissing. That's what it has gone to. Mm. They're so shy about it. Whereas the European movies, uh, recently at the Cannes Festival, there were some, some quite erotic movies. And so Europe and, and the U.S. are even growing more apart now at the moment uh, in this, uh, on this issue. How do you feel about that? Being your, your wife is French, right? And, mm-hmm. and you're Dutch, and you spent a lot of your, your life in the U.S. I'm sort of in the opposite uh-huh. side of it. I'm born in the U.S., but I spent most of my life in, in Europe, in Spain. Are you comfortable in American culture, given these divergences? Yeah, so uh, I've, I've learned to adjust to it, uh, and, and that certain things cannot be mentioned uh, some, without people getting red heads or something. <laughs> so I've learned that. Uh, I, I think it's very odd. And, and the thing that bothered me the most of all was their aversion to breastfeeding yeah. in public. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I still remember how I was shocked. I had just arrived in the U.S. and I read in, the, in my local newspaper in Wisconsin, I read that a woman had been arrested in the supermarket because she was breastfeeding. And I thought, this, this cannot be true. This is not possible. You cannot arrest someone for breastfeeding. But that's what had happened. So, yeah, that's the thing that bothers me the most of all. Uh, yeah, it's very odd. And, and I think when the sexuality of bonobos is ignored for that reason, um, that is very unfortunate. So, for example, the, 
the nature documentaries are almost always about chimpanzees uh, and very little about bonobos. And when I ask people from the BBC or the NHK who make these documentaries, why don't you do a little bit more on bonobos? They say, well, the bonobos, they don't show the same action. The chimpanzees, they fight and then there's blood and that's, that's good for uh, television. But the bonobos have no action. I say, well, there's a lot of erotic action. Well, that's not what they wanted to show. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that is changing. At the moment, we have several f- filmmakers. I'm in contact with them who want to do more on bonobos. And, and that's partly related to the gender issue and the sex issue. They mm-hmm. actually specifically want to show that. So, so it's, I think it's going to change in the coming years. It's an interesting point, and, and in the context of, of different, this, this book you've just published, um, you make a big point of saying, look, uh, a lot of this debate is about people's opinions and, and philosophical perspectives, but in science, we're looking for objective reality, we're looking for measurable uh, uh-huh. data. But it's interesting because what you just described is a way in which science is distorted, or at least the the public perception of science is distorted by the dramatic needs of a filmmaker, right? I don't know if it was you who told me the story, but someone told me a story about being in Congo uh, to help filmmakers who wanted to make, I think it was National Geographic, make a movie about um, bonobos. And they got all their equipment down there and they went out and they said, well, you know, when are they going to stop fucking? Did, was this you? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Whoever it was told me, like they had flown this whole team to, to Congo and they're like, wow, the, what, what's happening? They're fucking all the time. And like, when will they stop? And like, well, they don't stop. And like, oh, no, we can't show this. <laughs> they wasted all this yeah. money. Yeah, 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 that's clear. That, that, that's also how I wrote the book with uh, Franz Lanting. He, he, he's a famous photographer, and he went to the Congo to photograph bonobos for, the, for National Geographic and came back with a ton of pictures where, indeed, a lot of sex was going on, and the National Geographic didn't want it. Mm. And so that's how we ended up doing a book on it. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic both, book. And we both being Dutchmen, uh, we, we had no trouble doing that, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that uh, the forgotten ape, right, is the, the yeah, bonobo, yeah, the yeah. forgotten ape. I've probably given a dozen copies of that book as gifts. It's a beautiful book, large format, yeah, yeah. great, great photography. Um, yeah, well, it must, it must be awkward for you sometimes. Uh, you know, I mean, I know my experience at dinner parties when people ask me what I do and I, you know, <laughs> mention the first book or my Ph.D. And, you know, the conversation just sort of gets either really interesting for people or very awkward for people. I imagine, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, in, in Georgia, you yeah. must have that even more. I was in Los Angeles. Well, you know, um, we select our friends on how we get along with them. <laughs> and, and most of our friends here in the U.S., uh, we have no trouble talking about these issues. Yeah, they're used they, to you. They, they, don't, they don't get up and, and leave the table, so to speak. No. <laughs> I know. That's great. Um, is there infanticide in chimpanzees? Is that an issue? Like, I know with gorillas, when a new alpha male takes over the group or you silverback, there's the, the danger of uh, infanticide. Yeah. That's also the case with chimps. Yeah, chimps chimps do that, and I think the bonobo society is specifically designed to prevent that. So through so the promiscuity. 
Well, there are several, several issues. One is that the females have sex with so many males in bonobos, and so often that there is no way for a male to exclude his own offspring if he wants to be infanticidal. So uh, it's not a very, uh, very good strategy for males to be infanticidal. And the females are collectively dominant over the males, which, and, and so they, they, they can control their aggression of the males. So, so I think bonobo society is very much an anti-infanticide. And, and, and there are actually no official reports that I know of infanticide in bonobos. There are some reports of attempted infanticide, but not of um, an actual one. And in chimpanzees, we have quite a few reports. Yeah. So I've always been confused by that mechanism that you're describing, where... Uh, widespread sexual interaction between males and females leaves the males um, unwilling to contemplate infanticide because they might be killing some of their own offspring. This presumes that males understand that sex causes babies. No, no it doesn't, doesn't assume. We, we actually don't think that animals, whether they're chimps or mice or whatever, that males know about reproduction. Males don't know that they're making babies. So right, but isn't that the, the assumption there? Like, there's no. a lot of sex, therefore they... How would they know... Why, why, would, why would the widespread sexual activity influence their murderousness? Now, okay, let's say that you install a simple rule in males, a rule of thumb in their head, that says, be nice to females that you had recent sex with, including their offspring. If that's the rule that males follow, then they're gonna be favoring their own offspring because they're gonna be nice with females they had recent sex with. And actually for mice, I believe they have done some experiments that show that males have that tendency, is that if they had rec recent weeks or months, they had sex with a female, they're going to be nicer to her. And I think this is a strategy that many female animals can follow, is that if you have sex with multiple males, then you're excluding these males as dangerous for yourself because they're going to be nicer to you. Mm, okay. And they don't, the males don't need to know anything about offspring and making babies. They don't need to have that knowledge. Uh, and that's, I think, what bonobo females maybe are good at is they have so much sex with so many males that all of them are going to be nice with her when she comes with a baby. Right. What's the gestation period in bonobos? Uh, it's probably eight months. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So it's a pretty constant uh, renew those relationships constantly in order to maintain that. Well, they have they have a very long interbirth interval of six years, oh, five to six years. Really? So uh, a, a chimp or a bonobo has only maybe five or six children in her life because there are very long intervals between. Because a female cannot handle more. A female has a, a baby on her belly, a juvenile on her back, and maybe an older juvenile who follows her. She cannot handle more in the forest than that. And we humans, because we got men involved in offspring care with the nuclear family, we started to reduce the interval. So, so the, the reason we have 8 billion people on this earth is because we got men involved in offspring care. And, and so the interval in hunter-gatherers is, I believe, uh, three, three years, three to four years. So that's much shorter. 
Yeah, yeah, interesting. And what what's the infant mortality situation uh, in bonobos and chimps? Do you I know? don't know much about that. Yeah, because in hunter gatherers, it's around forty percent. It's quite high. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if if they would be similar to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. So what are you working on next? Do you have something, are you the kind of person who always has, you know, a pipeline going, or do you take a break and uh, just chill out and see if you get inspired? No, at the moment I'm very much involved in promoting my book. So recently I'm just back from the Netherlands where I did an enormous amount of interviews uh, on Dutch media. And the book is now a bestseller in the Netherlands. And and soon I will go to Germany, to France, to Italy, uh, Spain. So the book is coming out, I think, in at least a dozen languages. Mm. So I I need to promote it at the moment. So, and I find I find it very interesting because I'm sure I'm going to get very different reactions in, let's say, Germany. Uh, Germany had just a big scandal in, at the University of Berlin. Uh, by a woman speaker who was refused at the university because she was going to explain that there were only two sexes. And so the uh, the trans community uh, revolted and didn't want her to speak, even though I think they should have listened to her. Who, who knows what her uh, what she meant, uh, what she meant to say. Uh, I think it's always more interesting to listen to someone like that, even if you disagree, yeah. than, to, than to exclude them. But anyway, they excluded her. Uh, and so that's now becoming a big scandal, and uh, every every country going to have different reactions. I noticed that also in the translations, at least the ones that I can read, I, I noticed that the, the reactions are different. The way they translate gender and sex is already different per country. You know. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I I was thinking about that. To what extent linguistic. Uh, considerations shape this debate right like i just last night i watched a a documentary called what is a woman and uh it's this uh sort of right-wing guy going around and and interviewing doctors and uh, various people and trying to just get them to say like okay what is a woman how do you define woman and it you know he gets all these weird answers about uh, a woman is whoever says she's a woman, and he's like, "Yeah, but <laughs> what about the body and all that?" And uh-huh. it, it's it's very hard to talk about because the words are so fluid, you know. Um, you know, sex is often confused with gender, as you know, as we outlined at the yeah, beginning yeah. of this. But I think you know, you said this woman in Berlin wanted to say there are only two sexes. I think that's demonstrably true in mammals. Uh-huh. I mean, as you said, there's a very small percentage of intersex, you know, chromosomal yeah. anomalies. But generally, in mammals, you have either you know the the gametes are either uh, testicles or I'm not. I'm not sh- I'm not even sure she was talking about mammals. So uh, she was a biologist, but if if she means nature in general, mm. uh, well, it's a sort of blunt statement. There's only two sexes because there is, of course, a small percentage, and and there are species that can move. You know, you, there are certain fish who, who are start their life as a female and end their life as a male. You know, so mm. um, so. Uh, yeah, it's, it is a complex picture. I think even sex is a complex picture, and then gender is an even more complex picture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's an and, I, and I don't, 
I don't see the reason to simplify things. Uh, so, so, so my book is in that regard was a bit frustrating because I, I, at first I wanted to have a, a fairly simple message, but it became a much more complex message. So, for example, <laughs> one of the issues I, I wanted to address in the book, and I do address, is that people always assume that male dominance is natural and, and male leadership is natural. And uh, I'm not convinced of that at all. Uh, so, so leadership can be found in all the primates. Female leadership can be found in all of them. All, all of the primates have female hierarchies and have alpha females. So that's not hard to find. And even in species that are male-dominated physically, where the males are physically dominant, which is in many of them, even in those species, the highest-ranking female has an enormous amount of power. So I try to explain that power is something else than dominance, physical dominance. And, and so that was one of the main messages I wanted to give. But again, it complicates matters because people actually want to have hear a simple thing. They want to hear me say, male dominance is natural. And that's, that's all they want to hear. Um, but I think these things are never simple. Yeah, yeah. And one of the points that, that I made in, in one of the books I wrote was that female dominance in human societies doesn't look like the inverse of male dominance. So... It's not easily recognizable because females don't exert power the same way that males do. Yeah, it's much yeah, more it's coalitional yeah. and subtle, yeah, and yeah. so you don't necessarily see it. Do you know about the circle? I think it was the circle of women in the Iroquois. Do you know about that? No, no, no. So the Iroquois nation, a very interesting um, sort of coalition of tribes in uh, northeast United States, in fact, in some ways, uh, Benjamin Franklin studied them and modeled the the you know, structure of the United States government with the three different co-equal um, branches of government on the, the way the Iroquois wielded power within their uh, coalition. And one of them was that the men would sit in a circle and discuss whether or not they were going to do something, whether it's go to war or move the camp or whatever. And then there was a circle of women around the men, and the women didn't participate in the debate, but when the debate was resolved, the women had to approve or not approve the decision that the men had made. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's they, you know, they have power, they just wield it differently. They're not as loud, they're yeah. not the ones standing up and talking, but in the end, they make the decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah, these, these. Uh, I'm reading at the moment a book uh, about the history of the world, which which talks a lot about American Indian societies. They were much more complex and much more variable than I'd ever imagined. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's for sure. Speaking of books, uh, I read so, I read an interview with you somewhere where you talked about um, some of your favorite books, and one uh -huh. of them was um, Primates Memoir by Sapolsky. Yeah. Yeah, I love that book. That's it's, Yeah, no, uh, Sapolsky is such a fun writer. Yeah, he so, really is. So um, I'm always a bit jealous of uh, Americans who write in English because they have such a... Because I write in English, but for me it's my second language. So I'm always a bit jealous of how easily they express themselves. Yeah, Yeah. well, he's a particular... You have, you have, that, also, you have that also in your book. Uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, I, he's, he's such a fun guy to read. I, I met him once, actually. I met him, I was speaking at a, a conference in Mexico, and he was there uh, with uh, David Buss and uh, 
Helen Fisher and uh, Richard Dawkins. Oh, wow. It was a really interesting group of people. Um, and uh, Deepak Chopra also was there. And the main event was Dawkins and Chopra debating, uh, you know, if God exists or something. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. You can talk a long time about that, you know. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I've been to one of those conferences at Hiapa or something. It's a, it's a festival. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like a TED thing, but but in Mexico, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I've been there too. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Well, listen, thank you. Uh, I I figure we should probably end before the technology fails us again. I feel like there's a sword <laughs> hanging over our heads here. Uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, for writing this book, for wading into these dangerous, uh, <laughs> these dangerous waters. Um, and uh, yeah, I look for. Are you? Are you, do you have any plans to write a memoir? I know you include some personal things in in most of your books, but yeah, maybe I should do that. If, uh, my my life has not been very eventful, you know. I don't have five marriages and uh, a, a murder child or something like that. <laughs> well, <laughs> or no. <laughs> these days, I, I I saw in the book you said I think you were twenty two or twenty one when you were married and. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the mm -hmm. same age my parents married, and they stayed together their whole lives. And yeah. uh, you know, these days that kind of accomplishment is is noteworthy. You know, maybe write about how I, you did that. Oh yeah, the, the success of my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty boring, but uh, okay, we can try that. Yeah, give it a try. My name is Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's, and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Heading for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal It doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest Shut it up, but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is heading for a headstone die one day we're gonna die 
big deal If you want to be free Say what you want to feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 